6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Hebrews, chapter 8. Now, let's summarize this contrast if we can. Aaron was a man. Christ was the Son of God. Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. Jesus was the royal tribe, and therefore he could be a priest and a king. Aaron was established after the law of carnal commandments. Jesus, by the power of endless life. Wow. That's a lot of power. The Aaronic priesthood made nothing perfect. Jesus made everything perfect. The Aaronic priesthood was unable to bring a single sinner nigh unto God. Hear me out. The Aaronic priesthood was unable to bring a single sinner near unto God. Jesus did. Only Christ was inducted by a divine oath. Aaron had many successors. Christ had none. Aaron died. Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us. Aaron was a sinner. Christ was separate from sin. Aaron had to sacrifice daily. Christ died once and for all. But you couldn't get more of a contrast. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. A better covenant, better promises. That's the cornerstone here. The Aaronic priesthood mediated the Sinaitic covenant, or the Mosaic covenant, some people would call it. Jesus is mediating the new covenant, which was introduced in Jeremiah. And we're going to take a look at that here in a minute. Jeremiah 31, 31. 31 is the number of God, right? Geometry 31 is, right? Okay. Do you know that? Signature God is 31 squared, 962. It's the only place where you reverse the square, you reverse the, anyway. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll go on here. Okay. Uh, 961. Uh, anyway. The word mediator is used of Jesus by the author of the, this epistle three times. He uses the word mediator of Jesus Christ three times. You have no one standing between you and God. Your mediator, God, is not the pastor. That's why we don't call our pastors father. We don't call him reverend, not if you're knowledgeable. No, you call him pastor. He's a shepherd. But who is your mediator? Christ, not his mother, Christ personally is your mediator. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 5.8, you want to know that one. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 31, key verse in the Old Testament. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. By the way, that's an important phrase. That means the one that you now got is going to be superseded. There's a point at which it's temporary. It's going to be over sometime. The days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. Incidentally, there's nothing wrong with that covenant. What was wrong was the people. 
People couldn't keep it. That's what, that's, that was its weakness. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Boy. And I'll write it in their hearts. And will be their God. And they shall be my people. Has that happened yet? Not so you notice. Will it happen? Absolutely. And he even tells us when. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Wow. What a promise. They could have had that, but they turned it down several times. The writer here quotes these verses to prove that the prophets anticipated an abandonment of the Old Covenant upon which the Old Priesthood rested and the introduction of a New Covenant upon which the New Priesthood would rest. See, back in Jeremiah's day, you could infer that. God intended that the Mosaic Covenant was, if he, excuse me, if he intended to be permanent, then there would have been no room for another. If the old one were faultless, then there would have been no need to look for another. However, it was faulty. Why? Because it was weak? No. It, it, it failed to produce righteousness. It could show you the need for righteousness. It couldn't produce the righteousness. Jesus serves in heaven in a more excellent or better ministry than the Levitical guys could ever dream of. This ministry is based upon a better covenant, which is the theme for the rest of this chapter. Jesus has a superior priesthood because of the superior basis on which it rests. The superior basis are the better promises which are found in the better covenant, the new covenant. Let's continue here a little bit. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. But finding fault with them, he saith, notice he's finding fault not with the covenant, with the people. By finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. See, he's finding fault with the people here. Doesn't find fault with the old covenant, but with the people themselves. The law is spiritual, but men are carnal, sold under sin. Romans 7. This is that you understand why Romans 7, or excuse me, the book of Romans is a prelude before getting in to the book of Hebrews. The law was weak through the flesh, Romans 8 tells us. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant. That's the problem. It wasn't a problem of the covenant, it was a problem of the people. Because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after this. He's quoting the passage we just read. I just wanted us to see it in Jeremiah, but he's re-quoting it here, if you will. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. See, the old covenant was written with, by the finger of God on tablets of stone. But the new covenant is written by the Spirit on the human heart and mind. And that's what in, in Jeremiah 31, 31, it's also in 2 Corinthians 3. An external law can never change a person. It must become part of the inner life it is, if it is to change our behavior. See, that's the, the, the power of the new covenant, is that it's in the heart. It's not in the rule book. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8 talks about. This is accomplished by the Holy Spirit, who enables us to obey God's Word. The fact that you have access to the Holy Spirit means that every sin you 
there's never a excuse for sin to reign in your life because you have the power through the Holy Spirit because he indwells you. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for, they, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. All shall know me. This is obviously millennial. It's not true today. The day will come where there will be no need for personal witnessing. For all people will know the Lord. Wow. Also, it parallels a repeated promise in the Old Testament that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of God in Isaiah 11, 9 and many other places. And uh, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this, it's fulfilled in part now with us. I'll explain that in a minute. But the ultimate fulfillment, of course, is in the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom. For I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their nicknames will I remember no more. And so the old covenant was a yoke of bondage demanding perfect obedience. The new covenant emphasized what God will do for them, not what they must do for him. So it's the other, it works the other way around. It is here that grace steps in. What the law could not do because of man's weakness, God accomplished through the cross. All this is enabled because the price has been paid by our high priest of all people. My sins I remember no more. See, under the old covenant, there was a remembrance made of sins, but no remission of sins. And we're going to talk about that in Hebrews 10. The blood of bulls and goats could, cut, could cover sins, but only the blood of the Lamb of God could take away the sins of the world. That was John the Baptist's announcement introducing Christ's ministry. What a wonderful promise that gives all of us. Our sins will be forgiven and forgotten forever. That's breathtaking. That's breathtaking. The more you understand the Scriptures the more you'll be conscious of your shortcomings and how the incredible gap that exists between you at your best and God at his worst. There's still a gap, giant, if I can use phrase it that way. But that's all been bridged by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant. There are two different Greek words for old, by the way. The first is archaeos. That's the origin of the word archaeology. It's a word obviously means old. But it means old as a, a point in time. Okay? Aged, so to speak. If something is only old at a point of time, it may still be usable. Many of you may be driving an old car, but it's still serviceable, for example. Okay? This is not the word that's used here under Old Covenant. The word used here is the second Greek word, paleos, which is the origin of the English word paleontology. And it's a different kind. It means old in the point of use. It is worn out. It is useless. It means obsolete is, what, is the concept of it. It's past. Maybe you're saying, well, that's my car too. It's sort of... <laughs> See, and it's also, by the way, in the Greek perfect tense, meaning it has been made old in the sense of uselessness and continues to be so. In other words, it's not only old, it continues to be old. Now, you see, it sounds like a... a, a pun, but see, the, the new covenant is permanently antiquated, has permanently antiquated the old covenant. It's obs the old covenant is obsolete, aged, and has been rendered inoperative. It's not just old, it's been superseded. In that he saith the new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Does this get it across? 
You know, you, you know, most of us say, gee, he's sort of hammering this thing. Well, you have to realize this, was, this is a tough thing even today for many people to accept that the old covenant is gone. It's history. It's instructive. It's important to understand, but it's past tense. It's done. And, uh, the, the, and this is especially poignant to the readers of this epistle because they are in Judaism. And uh, the old covenant is not only old, but it is to vanish, to be put away. And so again, we see the writer calling these Jewish believers to come out of Judaism and stay out. The phrase, ready to vanish away, indicates that, but in a brief time would elapse before the temple would be leveled and the priestly activities cease. And they literally are in jeopardy because the temple is going to be the subject of an attack by the Romans. It's going to be burned down. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to literally vanish, not just theologically, it's going to be physically away. You and I are not under the Mosaic system. God says that it's an old model, and He's brought on a new model, the new covenant, which is made through the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He did, he, he did it not because there's something wrong with the old covenant, but because there's something wrong with us. And we can't, we can't manage it. The Spirit has to be in us. The high priest was not to tear his garments. That's said in Leviticus 10.6. He was forbidden from tearing his garments. That's a typical Jewish thing of anguish is tear their cloak or something. High priest was never to do that. The high priest there before Christ did, of course. Caiaphas at Jesus' trial tore his clothes. What did that mean? He took away the priesthood from Israel, whether he realized it or not. By doing that, he violated that and he tore the priesthood away. The Romans came in a few years later and leveled the city, destroyed the temple, which had uh, not yet been rebuilt, had been finished. The priesthood was taken away. And it was taken away because he tore his garment? Yes, and more than that, in a symbolic sense perhaps, but it was superseded by none other than our Lord himself. And the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, signifying the removal of that barrier between holy and most holy. Christ did that. And that's a very significant observation in, in Matthew 27. So we're dealing here with covenants. There's actually eight of them in the minds of many scholars, from Eden, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, what some people call a Palestinian covenant. That's an unfortunate label because it's, a, it's the label of their enemies. Let's call it the land covenant. The Davidic covenant and the new covenant. And uh, each one of those, uh, any, any good Bible will talk about that. That leads also to another view of what some people call dispensations. The traditional view is that, that, that in Eden it was the age of innocence. After the fall, it was the age of conscience. After Noah, it was the, of human government. And after that, then finally, when Abraham comes, it's the, it's the time of the promise. Then when, under Moses, it was the law. And under, after the law was the church. Some people call it grace, but that's an unfortunate label because it's always by grace. So we don't want to call it the age of grace. That's an unfortunate label. It's a, it, 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 it invites people to do a, an illegitimate connotative transfer. What you want to call it the age of the church, that's fine. And then you have the kingdom, of course, the millennium. And uh, the, the way this is typically di diagrammed, we have the age of innocence to, to the fall of man, age of conscience to, the, to Noah, human government to Abraham. Then we have the promise, which then results in the law after Exodus. And then we have the church, of course, which... Uh, and down here below, we see at the law, we have the nation Israel uh, established under Moses all that, out of the Exodus. But of course, the diaspora occurs after Christ's crucifixion. And, uh, and so, 38 years actually. Then there's the diaspora. Then Israel's restored. And it's after that Israel's restored at some point where the church time ends. 
And that's why we're so excited, because we're clearly approaching that time. And there will be, a, the church will be caught up, of course, and ultimately Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. So there are, the, that's the traditional, if you look at a dispensational study Bible, it'll lay out something approximately, pretty much like that. There is a slight change that is suggested by some, and that is we have innocence, conscience, human government. The promise and the law are sometimes lumped together in terms of Jewishness. The promise and the law are lumped together. The church, of course. But there's an interesting, the tribulation fits in here. And in a sense of speaking, it's sort of the, we, we have the promise, the law, and so forth, interrupted by a parenthesis called the church. And when the church is out of here, that's when Israel completes its acceptance of the kingdom, by Hosea 5.15, so that you really won't understand the tribulation until you recognize that perception of it. And then, of course, you have the kingdom. So that's a slightly different portrayal of the, the traditional dispensational view. But there are three major promises, the covenant with Abraham, of course, in his seed shall all nations be blessed. We, covenant with Abraham wasn't just Jewish. Everybody on the planet Earth would be blessed because of God's covenant with Abraham. Every benefit you and I have, Gentile or Jew, comes from Abraham. God's covenant with the nation Israel, of course, if they, they had a condition, if they faithfully served him, they'd prosper. If they forsook him, they'd be destroyed. So it was, they had given the land under conditions of obedience. And the third one is the covenant with David. And... Uh, his family would produce the Messiah who would reign over God's people forever. Not a thousand years, forever. A thousand years is another subject. What's interesting, though, to understand is that two of these are unconditional. Abraham's covenant is unconditional, praise God. And God's covenant with David is unconditional. And it's fulfilled in the millennium. You want to equate those in your mind. So we have the Mosaic Covenant being replaced by the New Covenant, and that's the subject of chapter 8 in Hebrews. Are we together? little perspective? Okay. The first covenant nationally with Israel, of course, was done at Sinai, and that's the Mosaic Covenant. And prior to that, they were under the Abrahamic Covenant, what some people call the time of promise. Israel's response to that covenant, ratified by blood, they entered the promise land under the Sinaitic Covenant, or the Mosaic Covenant. And that's all in the verses. You can check that out in the notes. The new covenant was started with John the Baptist, in effect. Jesus twice in Matthew 11 and Luke 16 says the law and the prophets were until John. John closes the Old Testament. That begins the time of the gospel in which the new co covenant is, is operative. When did this new covenant come into being? It was established, of course, by the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. That enabled it all. According to uh, 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 Hebrews 12, 24, Christ today is the mediator of the new covenant. And uh, now, what right do we have to apply Jeremiah 31 to the church? Many people not only do that, they get carried away with it. They say that all the promises to Israel devolve on the church. That's not correct. That's replacement theology and that does violence to the word of God. However, on what basis can the church lay claim to this? God's offer to, of the kingdom to the Jews is still open. It was Acts chapter 1 through 7 until they finally rejected it. It was offered to them uh, in the gospel time and was offered to them in Acts. When the Holy Spirit came to the believers at Pentecost, the new covenant was in force. Had the nation repented and received Christ as Messiah, all of the blessings and promises of the new covenant would have followed. But Israel refused the message and resisted the Spirit, and thus the nation was set aside. What happened in Acts 7? 
They not only rejected it, they stoned Stephen, who was presenting it to the, to the Sanhedrin. Very important milestone. And uh, so it's at this point that God brought the Gentiles into the new covenant and formed the church out of believing Jews and Gentiles. So today we have the body of Christ. They share the new covenant. And at Stephen's uh, assassination, his stoning, who was holding the coats? A guy by the name of Saul, who then took up the cudgel, and Jesus explained it to him a little more clearly. Right? And he becomes then the minister to the Gentiles. And that's why the writer to Hebrews doesn't sign it as an apostle, because he regards Jesus as the apostle to the Jews, and that's the epistle to the Jews. So Paul writes it, but doesn't sign it, because that would be, in his mind, supererogation. The nation of Israel will, at some future date, enjoy the same blessings we have now. When it looks upon whom they've pierced, that's a quote out of Zechariah 12.10, and the kingdom is established. Jesus says in Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, I go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. And that tells you that's the terminus. Paul in, in Romans 11.25 says, Israel's blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And then that wraps up this dispensation and opens, it again, opens the issue up again for Israel. Now it's clear that the Christians of the present time are also stand in the blessings. That's all through 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, etc. The Abrahamic covenant also promised universal blessings. So the new covenant as well becomes God's vehicle of salvation for all believers since the cross. All believers since the cross. You can, you can claim uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Now this perception of this should not confuse you about the di distinction between Israel and the church. Because the fact that the church is beneficiary of the new covenant doesn't mean that all the promises of Israel... Uh, devolve upon the church because many of them have, are, are national they have to do with the land they have to do with the earth Israel inherits the land the church inherits the universe our relationship is with the kingdom of God not the kingdom of heaven we enjoy both but our, our, our linkage is one up Jesus is the perfect priest he's called of God after the order of Melchizedek we hit that last time by divine oath that was the last chapter perpetual permanency Saving efficacy of priestly work, personal qualifications, of course, heavenly sanctuary, that's what we had here, and new covenant with which is associated. That pretty that's a summary of where we've been in the last two chapters. The next session, you ready for this? Next session, what I want you to do, it's all about a better sanctuary, okay? So I want you to study, of course, Hebrews 9. That's the next chapter. That's the easy part. You ready for this? You're going to do your homework. I want you to read Exodus 25 through 40. You can skip uh, Exodus 32, 33, and 34. I'll let you skip three of those, just to make it a dozen that way. But it's Exodus 25 through 40. Go ahead and read them. It's, all, it's the story about the tabernacle. And as you read that, you'll discover something interesting. There's more said about the tabernacle than any other single subject in the entire Bible. And you're going to discover that all the details, how, how long, how big, what it's made out of, what color, every detail in there is deliberate there, is, is uh, uh, done on purpose, and it points to, guess who? Jesus Christ, in some surprising ways. You can say, though, Chuck, you're going to be dealing in some puns. Yes, I will be. 
A pun is a deliberate connotative transfer, and the Holy Spirit uses that all the time. Silver, everything rests on silver. Silver is the symbol, the Levitical symbol for blood, right? This, the temple shekels were silver. The blood money was silver shekels, so, okay? 30 pieces of silver. It all rests on his blood, see? And so on. We will go through all that next time. It's... It, it, it's one of the most rewarding studies, if you've never done it, we'll go through it rather lightly, but enough so that you can find your way. It's a lot of fun. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. The Word of God. What an exciting, what an exciting tapestry where every thread ties to every other thread. Fun stuff. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for this epistle. But above all, Father, we thank you for the gift of our high priest and our king. We thank you, Father, that he offered himself so that we might live, that he abides daily to make intercession for us. So, Father, we just come before your throne awed with thanksgiving and gratitude for the extremes that you've gone to on our behalf and we would ask, Father, through your Holy Spirit and through your word that you would help us comprehend the magnitude of the gifts that we presently have and the gifts that are in store for us. Help each of us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord, our High Priest, and our King as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservations whatsoever, asking you just to guide us clearly in the path that you would have us trod. We pray, Father, you'd help us be more effective stewards of the opportunities before us as we commit our way into your hands in the name of Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time. As we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.